beginning with verse 32, uh, Luke 23. Two others who were criminals were led to be put to, to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called Skull, they crucified him and the criminals on the right and one on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Mm. And they casted lots and divided his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saves others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hung railed him and said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, we indeed justly, for we have received the due reward for our deeds. Mm. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into the kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, join me in prayer. Uh, thank you so much, Lord, for uh, your amazing providence, God, and, and what a breathtaking story that you've given us about your truth and how you communicate beauty through that. And so uh, as we prepare ourselves and uh, that you would just minister truth to us, God, you would bring conviction where needed and, and grace where needed, God, and we trust your spirit to do that. We thank you in advance that you would just illuminate this scripture and that you would use our pastor to communicate that to us, to remind us of your goodness to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Sammy. Please be seated. Well, as I mentioned, we're uh, continuing in our series on hope for hard cases, which is really uh, something that I've been looking forward to do for a couple months before summer started. And really, uh, hopefully, it's become clear by now that all we're doing here is meditating upon the gospel, kind of like looking at a diamond from different angles. Uh, and there's something about this passage uh, that's really important for us to be reminded of, even if you're very familiar with this story, uh, just in the verses that Sammy read, it happens in the midst of uh, the most tragic murder of all of human history, and the most unjust murder of all of human history. It also displays some of the most beautiful and compassionate words of God that have ever been uttered to sinners. Uh, two statements in particular that Jesus makes. And also, what I want us to think about is um, the two responses of two men to Jesus, and then most importantly, Jesus' response to one of them. And uh, hopefully what we're gonna come away with is just a, a, a fresh reminder of the extreme and radical nature of God's mercy. We've been hitting that from different angles, and here we see it right at the point of three men who are facing uh, death. You know, a lot of translations um, describe these men as criminals, thieves, some of them say insurrectionists, and uh, you know, that got me thinking, if you're here, you're a member, you know me personally, you know that uh, 
hearing the word criminal in the scripture it brings great delight to my black little heart. And uh, I was thinking about this during the week. And uh, a lot of the times we love the idea of God welcoming us into his midst. You know, we've talked about this several times, but we have a harder time making the mental or emotional leap to considering that God literally will welcome anybody at any point in their life into his midst if they ask. Uh, thinking of criminals and criminal activity, I have some humbling facts for you guys. You know, I was thinking about the United States and uh, my own experience in the, uh, the criminal justice system, which may or may not be extensive. Uh, it turns out the United States has the largest incarceration rate in the world. As of 2020, there's somewhere around 2.12 million people that are incarcerated uh, in the United States. I was reading the um, same article on statistics and data, and it said that uh, 20 to 25% of American citizens have a criminal record. So that means like one out of every four of you in this room is a criminal. <laughs> by society's standards. <laughs> and that's just those of us that didn't get away with, you know, that couldn't get away with it, which is certainly the case with me, but that doesn't even cover the crimes uh, that people get away with. And uh, one of the things I love about this story is that uh, it displays the fact that God loves criminals. You guys that know my testimony know that the first time I actually heard the gospel presented to me, I was in jail. And uh, that was the overarching experience that I had, that God actually loves the guilty. The problem for many of us is uh, even if we can acknowledge that we're guilty before God, it's hard for us to acknowledge that we may still be guilty on any given day as disciples or how guilty we may be. And, and that's where the extreme nature of God's grace kind of breaks into our hearts and our lives. And uh, it reminds us that God will go to extraordinary lengths to save us from what we actually deserve. <clears throat> That's the main idea that I want us to think about, that uh, simply this, that through Jesus, God actually gives us what none of us deserve. We'll think about that from three angles. Uh, the angle of a criminal who doesn't see Jesus for who he is, the angle of a criminal who does see Jesus for who he is, and then the angle of God uh, towards that man. Uh, first point, just two points here that I want us to think about. First point, uh, it's true for all of us uh, that when we're convinced that we don't really need Jesus, we never really know how much we need Jesus, right? If, if you are here and you've been walking with the Lord, you have the benefit, the wisdom, and the grace of the Spirit that helps you look back on your life and see this subtle or abrupt turning point where you could see yourself for who you were and what you were like your encounter with Jesus, and then hopefully a growing understanding of how he's changing you. Uh, but largely, all of us, when we, are, um, when we are living in the world, when we're living in a world where God doesn't really exist to us, uh, we live in an entirely different paradigm. I was reading an article uh, the other day from the New Yorker that's entitled, The Fantasy of Deathbed Conversions. You can tell where the article's going by the title, right? And uh, The author actually was a friend of a very well-known atheist uh, apologist named Christopher Hutchins. He died uh, several years ago, but he was a man who was uh, pretty rare in that he was pretty intellectually honest, and he would engage with Christian apologists and debate them in public forums, and it's actually available if you'd like to 
you see it, it's, most of it's available on YouTube. It's a pretty fascinating man. Uh, one of the people that he became friends with was one of the uh, Christian apologists that he would often debate. And that man would go on to say that he believed that Hutchins had a deathbed conversion. And so the thrust of the article really was focused on, first, the fact that he didn't believe uh, that to be the case at all. But the article would go on to explore what this author's view of Christianity was, particularly in regards to things like deathbed conversions. And one of his main points was that uh, the author thought that it was obscene that mental and physical anguish could be used to help somebody come to a belief in the supernatural. And as, as his, as in his view, he thought it was, uh, if that were true, that was something that undermined the basic premise of the Christian faith, that God is actually good and compassionate and merciful, because if he was, he wouldn't allow people to suffer in order to believe in the supernatural or come to a saving faith. And you know, if you think about it, that really, that's a common critique in a lot of ways, and it reveals a very common attitude uh, that people have in their hearts when they consider um, th the meta things in life, like life and death, what happens after we die, and whether or not God is involved uh, in those things in our own lives. Everybody acknowledges that death is a reality. Even while we live, even if it's unconsciously with the idea that we'll live forever. Uh, all of us deal with and cope with the reality that physical death is approaching in a myriad of ways. But I've always noticed that those two things are present. Even if we can acknowledge that we're all going to die, we live like we won't. And even if we acknowledge that we are going to die, it's almost universal until a person has an encounter with God that they cannot comprehend or accept the fact that that physical death is the result of their spiritual nature. Uh, they just cannot accept it. This story of two criminals and uh, the story of how Jesus responds uh, gives a perfect refutation of that. It just demolishes that idea that people live with. You know, I, one of the things I appreciate about Luke's recording of this account is it gives us the details we need, but it doesn't give us details that can distract us. Uh, what we know about these two men is that they are being crucified with Jesus in his greatest moment of suffering. Uh, they're called insurrectionists or thieves or criminals. That could mean a number of things, but what, what we know is that these were not good people. Uh, these were not good people that fell on hard times. These were men who lived a life of crime. Um, <clears throat> furthermore, uh, we're going to see that one man is able to come to grips with the reality of how he lived and what it meant for him spiritually. Uh, the other man could not, and that that makes all the difference in the world. And if we think about the man who mocks and rejects Jesus for who he is, it reveals uh, a heart of unbelief. Now, if you think about your former life before you met the Lord, uh, think about what life is like living in a world where God's mercy and compassion doesn't exist for you. For most of us, we'd say that it's tough. It's a tough world to live in. And one of the things that I've noticed when I witness to people is that living in a godless world produces a faithless and a cold heart. And when a cold heart 
has to go its own way and navigate through life, it ends up creating roots of bitterness in a human being. And this man who is crucified next to Jesus gives us a perfect example of the end result of a life that's filled with bitterness and godlessness and hopelessness. When the translation that we read this morning says that he railed or he mocked Jesus, it's kind of, it's a bit soft. You know, if you translate the word, it actually is the same word that we use for blasphemy. So it's not just that he's, he's like frustrated and happens to direct it towards this man named Jesus who's next to him. He's actually blaspheming him, mocking him to do something uh, that the thief believes he can't do. It, it's there's such force in the word that it's not just that this man didn't believe in Jesus. He didn't, in that moment, he didn't really care who he was. He was consumed with being killed himself. And so when he looked over and saw this man who people believed was the son of God, the promised Messiah, he didn't even care if that was true in that moment. Uh, he was a man who would have done anything to get out of the position that he was in. You know, sometimes we talk about the difference between um, godly guilt and worldly guilt. Godly remorse and worldly remorse. If this man regretted anything, it was the fact that he finally was being held accountable uh, for what he had done in his life. You know, as I was thinking about this man in particular, you know, one of the things that it struck me is that he, although you may not think that you are like him, you may not have lived a life full of crime. His heart is the same heart that you and I lived with the day that Jesus entered into our lives. Uh, a heart that lives without faith in God produces a life uh, that's driven to its own end and desires. And the conditions of a person's heart always reveals two things about them. If you've had any experience witnessing to people who are lost, you'll inevitably find this. Uh, A heart that is not a heart of faith reveals what they think about themselves and what they think about God. What they think about themselves and what they think about God. Even if you think uh, that you are guilty, most of us live with the notion that we're not as bad as somebody like this criminal. I can't tell you how many times I'll share the gospel with somebody and there'll always be a point in the conversation where they say, sure, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as somebody else. I do my best and I really believe at the end of the day that God's gonna accept that. He's gonna see my motives and my efforts to live a good life and that'll be good enough for him. I remember in particular a mutual friend of uh, Pascal and uh, Sammy and mine, a, a man that I knew from Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, he was a guy who said that he was a Christian and we began to talk about that. And somehow the idea of the justice and the mercy of God came up because I was trying to help him understand that in the gospel what we really see is God's gracious and unmerited offer of mercy to us through faith in Jesus. And he had a really difficult time with that idea and what finally came out during the conversation is that he uh, believed that what he wanted was a God who dealt in justice. And it became very emotional in the conversation because we began to talk about the idea of people like Jeffrey Dahmer, like we considered a few weeks ago, that God would show mercy and grace to somebody who was a serial killer. 
uh, that God would be willing to show mercy and grace to somebody who was a child molester. That's one that's very difficult for many of us to fathom. And he became very, very upset the more I talked about the extreme nature of God's mercy. And he said, no, I don't, I don't believe in that. I believe in a God who deals in justice. And I said, you know, it's, that's good and right to believe in a God who deals justly with the wrongs of the world. But that's actually not what you and I want personally. What we actually need is a God who acknowledges that justice needs to be served and then offers us mercy in a different way. And he flat out said, no, I can't believe in that. There's no way I can believe in that. You know, to this day, I don't know that that man ever stepped inside of a church. The reason that the Bible goes to such extraordinary lengths to help you and I understand the true nature of our sinfulness and our rejection of God is that that's the only point at which we are able to see our desperate need for his mercy for us. That man could not accept that. He could not deal with that reality. He wanted to approach God based on his own merit. Uh, and that highlights the second part that I want us to consider, that at the point that you and I come face to face with who we truly are, when we acknowledge that we actually do deserve God's judgment, God gives us his grace and mercy through Jesus. Uh, you know, Luke is largely silent about the second criminal, uh, and I actually really appreciate that uh, for a number of reasons. We're really given nothing about this man's life other than the fact that he was a criminal. So whatever we know about him, we knew that he did bad things and that he was paying the consequence for those things by being crucified and murdered with other people that were guilty. Uh, so we know that he was guilty before society. He broke the laws of society as paying the penalty of that. We also see that he was guilty before God. Uh, we see that in his response to Jesus and the acknowledgement that he makes to Jesus as he's facing death. Um, <clears throat> if you remember, we started this series by thinking about Paul. And you know, I said this then and I'll say it again. We see people like Paul and it's easier for us to accept that a man that promoted and participated in the murder of Christians because we see his whole life as an apostle afterwards, right? And then we considered somebody like Jeffrey Dahmer and as shocking as that is, if you're familiar with Jeffrey Dahmer's crimes, he too had this short period in his life before he was murdered in prison where he seemed to display a genuine faith in God. He was baptized, he studied, he followed God to the best of his ability and in prison, even acknowledged that he deserved death but he didn't get it in his sentencing. Here with this man, we have nothing. This man has no track record to stand on other than his guilt. That's what makes it one of the most powerful examples of the gospel in the Bible. This man has no time to make things right. There's no foxhole prayer that this man's offered. God, if you just get me out of this, I promise I'll never sin again. I'll live a different life. I'll serve you for all of my days. And he knew that. This man is staring face to face with death, with no opportunity to change how he was gonna live. Uh, I've found that the way that you and I interpret God's mercy 
in the most difficult moments in life is also in, is often influenced by how we interpret ourselves. The first man had no self-awareness of his spiritual state before God. The second criminal has what we call in recovery a moment of clarity in which he sees himself for who and what he truly is. And that shapes everything that he does in response in the last few moments of his life. Three things in particular that I want to point out for us that Luke does record uh, in terms of this man's response. First, he sees his own sin and guilt, and he makes no excuses for it. If you noticed in verse 40 and 41, uh, after the criminal rebukes and blasphemies Jesus, this man responds by saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This man had that moment of clarity where he acknowledged that everything he was experiencing, he actually deserved. I remember the moment of my life that I offered the first honest prayer to God. I was in a jail cell, I was getting processed, I was waiting to get shipped to an upper level where I'd wait to go to court and I was looking at a prison sentence. And all I said was, God, I cannot do this anymore. I need your help, please help me. And that was it. This man simply acknowledged his own guilt before the world and before God and it changed his eternal future. You know, it's true for every one of us, whether you've had that radical moment of conversion or whether you've had a subtle conversion in your life, that every one of us has this moment of clarity where by God's grace, he gives us this severe mercy where he reveals to us what we're really like, the extent of our guilt. And the thing that I love about the mercy of God is he gives every one of us individually just enough of a look for us to realize that there's no way for us to have peace with God without Jesus' intervention. You know, I think about this a lot, and I, I don't know how I'll ever be able to thank God for not showing me the full extent of the offensiveness of my sin before him. I think it's one of the most severe and sweetest mercies that every one of us probably take for granted. That on any given day, God gives us just enough of an awareness to bring us back to him, seeking his mercy and his grace. And at the point of conversion, the same truth held for this man. He saw himself for what he was. And that made him go to desperate measures to have peace with God. Uh, second, this man also saw Jesus for who he was when he was facing death. You know, the, the, the account of the crucifixion, the point of Jesus being murdered and uh, laid in a grave and then rising from the dead is the very centerpiece of all of scripture, right? It's the very heart of the gospel that God would send his son, that he would be unjustly murdered, 
laid in a grave and then rise from the dead to pay the penalty for our sins and then offer us new life through the righteousness that he earned in his life. Do I think that that man understood all of that? Not even close. That's one of the most beautiful parts of the story. What he saw was a couple of different things that cued him in that this man was truly the son of God. First, he saw the innocence of Jesus. He says that straight up to his partner in crime. He said, this man is innocent. Uh, Second, he witnesses Jesus making one of the most beautiful statements that's a display of God's compassion and mercy towards people that are rebelling against him. In verse 34, as Sammy read, when Jesus is being mocked and ridiculed, physically murdered, What's his response? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In that moment, that man saw God's compassion on display in this person. And he also saw the very human and fallen response of somebody else next to him. And when he considered the way of death and the way of rebellion, and the way of mercy and compassion being displayed in this man, Jesus. He cried out for it. He held nothing back. The mercy of God is displayed in the life and the work of Jesus, in his words here at the cross, also in how he lived, and also in his response to people that recognize how desperate they are for it. This thief on the cross, in the worst possible position of his life, being murdered for sins that he committed, finds himself in the best possible position to receive God's mercy. That is such good news. For you and I at the point of our conversion, our lowest moment, the moment where we really catch a glimpse of the darkest part of our hearts, puts us in the best possible position to be lifted up by God. And that's true for every one of us as his disciples. One of the things I love about God is he doesn't remember my shortcomings like I do. You know, I I can tell you I'm my own worst critic on any given day. And God never remembers my shortcomings like I do. He doesn't hold my sins against me. And he does that for all of us, but he gives us enough wisdom and insight to see just how much we need his mercy and grace, even as his children, and that he's happy to give it to us the moment that we ask. Uh, This man had the desperation of a dying man. He had the humility of a man who caught a glimpse of what his heart was really like. And we see that in his response. This man doesn't offer an eloquent prayer, right? He doesn't, say, uh, he doesn't say anything that would indicate that he wanted to make a deal with God. What does he say? It's, it's the shortest plea for help in the world, right? He doesn't even say, I think I might deserve it. Maybe if I believe in you, does that mean I'll get in? What does he say? Remember me when you enter your kingdom. That's all the man said. <laughs> Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And what's God's response? 
I will remember you. It's one of the most beautiful responses in all of scripture, right? He says, I tell you right now, listen to me. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Nothing that you've done could stop me from taking you with me. Nothing that you've done could stop God's love from pouring out on you, here and now, even in your darkest moment. Today you will be with me in paradise. You know, I think about, uh, I think about my own life. I've been through seminary, I've been a Christian for a long time, and as much as I hate to admit it, you guys, you know one of the most insidious things that I find that still lingers in my old nature is how familiar I get with this reality. How comfortable I get with the extreme lengths that God went to to save me. In the extreme lengths that God shows me in his grace every day of my life. That there's nothing that stops him from helping me grow in my faith. There's no sin that he holds against me. There's nothing that can stop his love from transforming me from somebody who was just like this criminal into somebody that almost unbelievably will resemble Jesus himself. That's hard for me to believe. It's easier for me to see the old Brian than it is for me to see the Brian that God says he's turning him into. And I think that we get so comfortable with the extreme nature of the gospel that we forget that we're all just like this thief. Uh, any person who believes that they have to approach God on their own moral resume will ultimately be rejected. If scripture tells us anything, it's that. But more importantly, what it tells us is that anybody that's willing to approach God based on Jesus' moral resume will never be denied. That nothing can stop them from being accepted into the kingdom of heaven. And that's what Jesus reminds us, man, in his final moments. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. You will be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. God will call you son, even though you are as guilty as guilty can be. You know, a lot of the times when uh, we think about the gospel, uh, and I'll say I think this is more true in, in Reformed traditions, we think about the gospel as this abject thing or this objective principle. And we think about it in a very passive nature. Meaning I think about what God did to save me, how I receive that, and then largely we have a disconnect between our head and our heart. Uh, but I really believe that stories like this are given uh, to first remind you and I of the extreme nature of God's mercy, but then also to remind us that God's saving grace is meant to transform first how we understand ourselves, but also how we live our lives. Um, what do I mean when I say that? We never really understand how bad we are, right? And that's God's mercy. We're much worse than we think we are. <laughs> if, you know, if you've been convinced you're not all that bad, let me remind you, you're much worse than you think you are. <laughs> if you don't believe that, just take the rest of today 
and try not to have a sinful thought or an action. Just today, just till dinner. Just try it till dinner and tell me how it goes. Uh, second, that God's grace towards you and I is so much greater than we could ever imagine. We, we truly will never be able to fathom the beauty and the depth and the power of God's grace towards us until we stand face to face with him. But to the extent that God reveals that to us as we walk with him and we grow in faith, it's designed to transform how we live. I said in the beginning that God loves criminals and that's because every one of us is a criminal in the divine court of God's holiness, right? Every one of us, guilty as charged. And yet God takes every single one of us and not only says not guilty, but gives us all of the blessing and reward and righteousness that Jesus actually deserves in its place. And so that's designed to inform how we live. What does that mean? That means that uh, you know, there's always the so what question with every part of scripture. So what, God saved this criminal who didn't deserve it. Didn't do anything but acknowledge that he deserved death and ask God to help him and he got it. What does that mean for you and I? If you and I are just like this man, that means that we have the incredible privilege of displaying God's radical mercy to people that live in a godless world. But you know, that means two things. You know, a lot of us are very comfortable with the idea of sharing the grace of God and helping people understand how much God loves them. But you know, that also means that we need to do the very uncomfortable and challenging work of helping them understand how far they've fallen from God's original design for humanity. When we share the gospel with people, we have to help them understand that they're much worse than they think they are. And you know, sometimes you, maybe you've had this experience. I've had a lot, Rob and I have been guilty of this when we were young Christians. We can be really good at telling people how bad they are and, and then forget to tell them how gracious God is. Uh, and so we weaponize the gospel. Other times, we feel really uncomfortable with the reality that until an individual sees just how sinful they are, they can't truly comprehend the beauty of God's grace. If you think about these two criminals, they give us great insight into that. One man could not see how sinful he was and he didn't even care. The other man saw how sinful he was and as soon as he did, he saw how beautiful God's mercy was. And the moment he asked for it, it was his. And so we're called to walk in a way that both shares the truth, but does it in love. Helping people understand that there's nothing they've done that can cut them off from God's love and forgiveness for them. Helping people understand that if people like that person, and if people like you, can be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven, then anybody could, and that includes them. Amen? Let's pray. Thank God for how extreme his love and grace is towards every one of us. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are a God uh, who is so foreign to us when we think about things like justice and mercy and grace. Uh, and sin and holiness and righteousness. We thank you that your love is so uh, radical that you literally took on 
human flesh and lived among us. That you've gone to such extraordinary lengths to save us. We thank you for this thief on the cross, Lord, that you would save a man who did nothing to deserve it other than acknowledge that he didn't and ask for your mercy. And that you've given us that as a reminder, not only that that includes us, and then that's the very center of our identity, former criminals who are now your children, that we have the incredible privilege of going into our lives and sharing that beautiful truth with people that don't know you, with people that are rebelling against you. We pray by your spirit that you would give us uh, the wisdom and the strength and the grace and hearts filled with compassion and humility and devotion to the lost and that we would help them see the beauty and the power of the gospel and that it's available to them. And it's in your son that we pray and ask these things. Amen.